you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. It is very important that we know the God we worship. It is also imperative that we discern how God defines himself in his word. If we do not take the time to know our God, we will never know ourselves. We might think we can never know God. When we really think about God, we can see some apparent tension. How can we say, for instance, that God is simple on the one hand, but also incomprehensible? How can we say that God is separate, but also personal at the same time? These are just some of the instances. Please join us as we seek to answer these questions and many more, and remind ourselves that we are the creatures, and He is the great Creator King. Well, as we continue to work through the Lord's attributes, this attribute is one It's a bit of a a controversy, not that I necessarily agree with the controversy, it's not controversial for me, Um, but what some people say is that if God's really consistent and unchangeable, this would make God some lifeless, passionless being, Uh, one who, who cannot really act or do anything that's meaningful. That claim of God is actually rather offensive to me. I don't think that's fair at all, and it's certainly not what Scripture teaches. But nevertheless, if you go out there and and you read uh, some writings on the consistency of God, this is a basic summation of what people will say, that this makes God dull, passionless, uh, a God who really has no purpose. Well, the Belgian Confession lists this as an attribute of God. So obviously, as a minister of the gospel, it took vows to uphold the uh, confessional standards. Obviously, I have to uphold this, and I have to believe it. Now, I'm not constrained to believe this in the sense that I guess I can teach it that way. Uh, But nevertheless, this is something I truly believe. And so how can we account uh, for God, like what I read from Jonah, that's one of the uh, prophets people will appeal to, that God changes and he's open to change, uh, that when we, when we look at this, how can we account for God changing, or at least it appears to us as humans, where God relents or he changes as well, and at the same time say that God is unchangeable, he is consistent, uh, he is immutable, it means that he does not change. How do we account for this? So as we look at this, we'll see first that we're discouraged, or at least I'm discouraged by man's inconsistency, thinking about who we are as James lays it out. But secondly, how we are fundamentally and ought to be encouraged by God's consistency. And so let's begin with the discouragement of man's inconsistency. When we think about the contrast, we've talked about the communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. This is an incommunicable attribute. It means that this is an attribute that God does not give to his creatures. And we can see this because when man is created, we say that man is created perfect yet mutable. So what that means is that man's created perfect, but he can mutate, right? So we're familiar with mutations and those sorts of things. What it means, man's created perfect, but he's able to change. Uh, So when Adam's created in the Garden of Eden, he's created with everything he needs to obey the will of God. He's not lacking in anything. However, Man can truly decide whether to live by the word of God or to live by a deceptive word, a word that's contrary to what God has revealed. 
And once man decides uh, where he's going to uh, rule his life in submission to the will of God or submission to man in his own ways, uh, man's going to be confirmed in that. So man can change. Created perfect, but he can change to be a sinner. And of course we know the tragedy of what's happened where man is one uh, who has given in to uh, the temptations of Satan and man changes. And so he is no longer perfect. Now some say, well, that's only true for mankind. What about the angels? What about the spiritual realm? Well, we talked about how man has a spirit within him. Obviously, our souls are fallen. Uh, our wills, everything about us has been changed. But we also think about the angels in heaven. Uh, we don't want to say when we look at God and who he is that he created Satan as a rebel. You know, he talks about Satan falling out of heaven, which tells us there was some sort of a rebellion that happened. We say that as Satan's name means adversary, there's certainly a power struggle that's going on, or at least an attempted power struggle, where Satan tries to rise up above God. So Satan falls. This means Satan was created perfect. Satan changed along with the demons. So when somebody says, well, spiritual beings share this attribute, well, that's not true, um, because we see Satan is able to change, and he does, in fact, change. Uh, he moves as one who is a faithful uh, follower and submitter to God, if that's a proper word, probably not, but he's one who faithfully submits to the Lord, and he is one who then rebels against the Lord. And we think about even in terms of who we are as human beings. We can lose digits. We can lose arms. We can lose limbs. In fact, uh, when you look at uh, how it works with the body shutting down, even in terms of, of cold climates where we go into hypothermia, you can see how our bodies and God's design of things, even in a fallen world, which is rather amazing, that he has it where the ends or the furthest points from our heart shut down, lose blood, die off, so that our core and our brain is preserved, which means we can mutate, we can lose our limbs, and yet we can still live. And so we see how, how God's designed us, where even in those instances we see that we can change, uh, we can lose organs, etc., and we can still live. So we are still changeable as human beings. But James points out another issue in terms of who we are. Then one of the things that James praises, when you look at the book of James overall, it's really, uh, I think I've said this before, but being a James and Paul. Paul's one who, when he puts his arm around us and he tells us to continue in a Christian life, he's saying, you're seated with Christ, this is your identity. See yourself as, as from heaven going through this world and, and sojourning up to heaven. So he's starting in the glory of heaven, calling us to have a perspective in this life of a heavenly perspective, sojourn, walk in Christ, and the power of the Spirit, and up to heaven. James's perspective is a little different. For James, he's sort of pointing us down the hallway, in the long hallway of this life, to the ultimate goal of heaven. Now, it's still the Spirit that's operating. It's still Christ who gives us wisdom. But for James, he's really emphasizing the trials in the Christian life, the, the tribulations we can face in a dispersion as he begins his letter. That's an important point. Dispersion is making a reference to the exile. So for James, 
he begins with the church having a consciousness that we are outside the land of heaven. We are outside the true Canaan. We're, we're sojourning to it. We've already undergone an exodus, but he doesn't want us to start in the exodus. He basically, we can think of James as starting with us at the Red Sea crossing after Exodus uh, 15, celebrating the Lord's victory and sort of moving through the wilderness in that time. So that's kind of the, the perspective James has for us. Now when James writes to us, he wants us to understand that as we're called to live out our Christian life, we need to have a very clear picture of God. And this is where we can say, well, doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine just divides. For James, it's very important. We need to truly understand who our God is. Because if we don't know who our God is, we're not going to remain steadfast under trial. Isn't, isn't that his celebration, right? It's where we count it a joy to have these various trials. Our faith is tested. We remain steadfast under these trials. So we remain consistent as those who walk in Christ. And so when, when we think about this and who we are, James wants us to understand that who we are in Christ is given to us as a gift, right? 1 verse 17, it's from the Father of lights. But even here in verse 5, he tells us the reality of our temptation. That when we pray, we're to pray asking for wisdom, right? So wisdom, the application of knowledge. You think about true wisdom, where we think about the true knowledge of Christ or the true knowledge of the gospel and wanting that gospel to be applied to every aspect of our lives as we face trials and tribulations. And so as he does this, he's encouraging us to say, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives us these things. Uh, this is sort of along the lines of what the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us in answer 116, where it tells us that God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to such as earnestly and without ceasing beg them from him and render thanks unto him for them. And a rather strong answer reminding us of the importance of prayer. Again, one of the great mysteries uh, for us because if God's really the giver of all things and God gives us new birth, it just seems like it's this exhortation that's making it conditional. But when you really get at what the catechism's driving home to us, is it's saying we need to understand the source of our life and have a proper perspective. That this is a, a life of prayer, a life of seeking to honor the Lord as we live this out. Now, as the Lord promises to give us wisdom and provide for us, and we understand that God's the one who's a giver of all good things, we know that as the Lord is a giver of wisdom, as we ask for wisdom, we might say, well, why do we need this wisdom? Why, why is this so important? Well, he reminds us of this age in the wilderness sojourn. And he uses an analogy of the sea. And you think of a sailor in the sea, and you can pretty much predict how the sea is going to go until the wind changes. And then the waves change. And so James is saying that we need to be careful because if we don't have a proper anchor point, we can be like a, a ship that has uh, really no skilled captain that knows how to navigate the seas and how to navigate wave to wave, how to deal with a changing wind. 
and then figure out how to get to the destination. So we end up going to the left, we go to the right, we go to the left, we go to the right, and basically we just end up going in a circle. Nothing happens that's beneficial. And so James is saying if you don't have that proper anchor point and the proper wisdom in Christ, you're going to be tossed around, driven around, sort of lost, meandering in the ocean, and you're double-minded. So this double-mindedness uh, is one who basically has an unpredictability about himself. Uh, might go left, might go right. You're not going to know how this person is going to function. So on the one hand, committed to Christ, maybe not committed to Christ, committed to the ways of God, maybe not committed to the ways of God. And he says uh, the problem then is that this person becomes unstable, right? There's no predictor as to what this person's going to do. Man's inconsistent, going to continually change. And so what James is reminding us in this is we are prone to wander. We're, we're prone to this instability. And James is saying when these trials come, we're, we're prone to be tossed around, have our faith all rattled, and not really turn to the Lord and understand his goodness. And this is where he wants us to understand and see, when we get to verse 17 in, in summary, every good thing comes from God. And we need to have that, that confidence, that, that anchor point. We are prone to wander. This again, when, when I look at scripture and you think of the Apostle Paul recounting his conversion and the Lord saying to him, stop kicking against the goads, right? You, you look at what, what does our will do? I mean, yeah, we, we have a will. We can choose according to our greatest desire, but what do we seem to always choose to do? To kick against the Lord, to, to go in our own direction, to go in our own wisdom, and not to consciously break our own will and come in submission to the Lord. That's what James is simply telling us. Our fundamental temptation is a drift away in the sea in the midst of trial. So we are inconsistent. So now we say, well, what about God's consistency? And this is where we may say, well, maybe it's not that, um, that encouraging or it doesn't really console us to think of God being consistent. Because people will say, well, if you look at Scripture, and, and you don't have to go very far. In fact, I bet if you did an Internet search, uh, well, if you search openness of God, you'll certainly find these arguments. Uh, that's something where on a very popular level you can find this. Uh, it used to be more of an academic discussion. But anyway, the, the basic claim or the basic premise or claim of this is that we find in Scripture, like with Jonah, that God uh, decides to do something, and then he repents. And so they say, see, and how God operates, he's open to change. Uh, for instance, uh, we can think in Genesis 6, verse 6, as one of the passages people appeal to. They say, here God makes man on the earth, man rebels, God has this, this grief that he's made man, and, and, and he repents, and he wishes this never happened, right? So God's open to change, as claimed. Uh, we think of Noah walking off the ark, Genesis 8, verse 21 and 22. Uh, Noah offers a burnt offering. God smells a pleasing aroma, and the Lord is soothed. So he's, he's angry, and all of a sudden he's soothed. And so people look at this, and, and, and they think of Jonah 4, verse 2, where Jonah's upset, where the Lord changes his mind and, and what he has done. And people say, see, when you look at God... 
you can't say that God is just consistent. This would make God like a, a dull rock, one who has no passion. Because in order for someone to really express their passion and, 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 and their true desires, they need to be able to be open to change and open to making their own decisions. Now, there, there is an answer to this where some say, well, maybe in terms of God being Lord, that doesn't change. So God being over the creation, he doesn't change in terms of that. But in terms of his ethical decisions and what he has ethically decided to do, he can change in those realms and areas. So, in other words, as he is God above creation, he's consistent. But as he works in creation and he surveys creation, God then is free to change as God wants to change uh, as he desires. And so obviously we say, well, maybe this sounds like a helpful way because we're, we're not saying God fundamentally changes. Now some will go to the extreme of saying, yes, God can change in terms of his essence and who he is, but it, there's variation. So if we take the best possible read of this and say, God above creation cannot change, but as he works in history, he can change. Well, you might say, well, well maybe this is a, a good answer to it. Well, when, when we look at this, we think, well, is this really helpful? Well, on the one hand, I'd say, well, no, <laughs> it's not helpful. Uh, because we're, once we say that God can change ethically, there's a real problem, isn't there? Because it means some people can get to the final judgment. And the Lord says, well, I, I know I said that what Christ did is sufficient, and, and that was my decision there, and that Christ really did make payment, and, and that was what I said for those people. But, but now that you're at this point in the line, I've decided I'm going to change. And now I'm going to decide, according to my ethics, that now it's based upon your works. And we're going to decide who's good, who's bad. And if you're good and, and, and your bad works counteract your good works, well, you don't get into heaven. And then maybe after that group goes through, there's another group where the Lord introduces new concepts for how one's going to enter his kingdom. Now people would say, well, but according to who God is above time, he wouldn't do that. But the reality is once you say God can change ethically, God can do that, Right? So, just in terms of, of what we say in our redemption, that puts us on edge. Because we say, well, how do I know if I can enter heaven then if God's free to change? But nevertheless, I'll fire back at you and say, well, what, what about the Lord changing with Jonah? What about the Lord grieved that he makes man on the earth? Is God not sovereign enough that these things will happen? So how do we answer that? When we look at the Lord and who he is, the thing we have to understand is we've already conceded a bit of a problem, right? The, the very premise, the very claim is a promise or, or a problem. When we start saying that if God cannot change and he cannot uh, undo what he has decided to do or God can just ethically change as he will because that would make him a passionate God. We're saying that God actually lacks something in and of who he is. And this presents a bigger problem for all the other attributes of God. Because once we start saying that God has to change to become something else, 
to be more passionate than what he already is. We're already saying that God is not complete. God is not truly simple. God is not really one who is content in who God is. We're opening up the possibility that in order for God to truly be a passionate being, God has to change his will, change his mind. And so to set up this scenario where it's either a rock that is passionless, unmovable, and dull, or that's maybe changed by circumstances that come against it with the wind or the water, or it's a God who's able to change, we set up a false scenario. We, I mean, honestly, we look at God, we say, well, who is God? Well, he's a God who is steadfast, a God who is merciful, a God who is just. And so people say, well, what about Jonah? Well, what about what Jonah has done? What about Jonah being so angry? What about the Lord presenting this strong presentation of destroying the city? Jonah parading around, preaching this message. Why is Jonah mad? And this is where it's so important to take someone right back to the text. Why is Jonah mad? He's mad because of who God is. What does Jonah say in Jonah 4 verse 2? Jonah is one who returns and and calls who God is. He knows that God will relent. What does he say? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So right there, Jonah is appealing to God who is passionate, right? These people repent, the Lord is passionate about his mercy. These people don't repent, the Lord is passionate about his justice. This isn't an issue where God needs to change because there's something inconsistent with who he is. Jonah is praising the consistency of God and who he is and his attributes. People will say, well, what about David with with the young one after his sin with Bathsheba and where David fasts and, and that example and where David himself has a mindset that the Lord would change? Well, if you go back and you read that story, what's going on there? David sins, commits murder. He doesn't want this child to die as a result of his sin. And so David is one who fasts and prays, and he's one who hopes that the Lord will relent. Why? Because he knows the Lord is merciful, but he also knows the Lord is just, right? And so when the child dies, you know, you sort of have this interaction with the individuals that that are tending to the child, and, and, you know, people say, well, why is it taking so long? Well, David has sinned, (laughs) David has murdered And there's a reason why people say, don't kill the messenger. Because a person who delivers the news might be escorted off and might be executed. So you don't want to tell David the child died. And they're taken back, why? Because after they break the news and David asks and he realizes a child has died, he gets up and he asks for food. And they go, we don't understand this. You were just grieving, you were fasting, you were praying, and, and now that the child has died, you've... You've decided to eat? He said, well, I know the Lord is basically merciful. I know the Lord is one who could have relented according to his mercy. But the Lord has basically decided to execute his justice. Right? So again, it's not that David is seeing it that God changes and becomes something that he's not. It's David understanding who God is consistently 
and God operating in terms of his justice, mercy, and his attributes. And so God does not need to change to express his passion. God does not need to change to express his creativity. I mean, God's the one who's created all of us, as we find from Jeremiah. And so we need to be very careful when people start presenting these dilemmas that sound very persuasive that it's an either-or. The reality is it's not. If we say God's a dull rock if he can't change, we're, we're not understanding who God is. Because if we have a God who, who can change, we, we have a maverick of a creator. One who on the one hand can decide one thing that's right and wrong, and on another hand decide something else that's right and wrong, and we're not going to really know where we stand with this God. And I would argue that when you look at these passages, even when you have this language in Genesis 6, what's the expression there? Well, the Lord's simply looking at the creation, looking at how depraved humanity is. It's not that God is shocked, but God is one who is grieved at what man has become. So he's operating in terms of his justice. But in terms of his mercy, he still sees Noah. Because you look at the text and it says, but Noah, which means soothing in the Hebrew language. So there's a soothing aroma to the Lord, which anticipates the sacrifice in, in Genesis 8. But the whole point of this is that the Lord isn't changing to become something else. It's not that the Lord is surprised. The Lord is still operating in terms of the consistency of who God is. He does not need to be something else or add something else to his being to be more complete. And this is where James, setting the stage of the reality of temptation, right? The reality that we are tempted to pull away from the Lord. What is James communicating to us? Well, we're going to face hardships. We're going to have trials. Verse 13 he reminds us, don't say you're being tempted by God, right? So God's not some ethical pragmatist who comes into the world and says, well, I'm just going to tempt this person and see what they do because I'm going to see if they can stand up. Well, we see with Job, you know, Satan challenges the goodness of God and God says, well, go ahead, you know, do what you want to do with him. Uh, but you can't take his life eventually is the, really the final time when Satan comes back to him the second time. God's still being consistent. God's not tempted. Now, James reminds us in terms of this that we are those who are able to be prone and we are those who are able to give in to evil, right? God doesn't tempt anyone. Verse 14, we're the ones who give in to this temptation. Uh, we're the ones that have these desires that sprout up within us and we give ourselves over to them. And so James is saying, understand the root of the root of this, it's not that God changes. He's not some ethical pragmatist where the end justifies the means. James is saying God's consistent all the way through. Now we may say, well, why would I want to serve this God? Well, for some reason in this church, they, they really seem to doubt the goodness of God, as we can be prone to do in the midst of trial, right? We can question whether or not God really loves us, if God's really with us, uh, if God is one who really cares. But James wants us to meditate and have our, our fixation on a different perspective. Because he calls attention to two things, a good and perfect gift in 1 verse 17. So he's emphasizing the reality. Everything good in our lives is from God. Everything is from our Lord. Uh, everything good that comes to us. So we have to understand, we are those who live in a sin-cursed world. 
We are those who live out our Christian life in the wilderness experience, and our God in his providence is the one who provides for us. Now, James emphasizes this, that he says it comes down from the Father of lights, right? You think about the reality of the Father of lights, as the Lord is the one who gives us all good things. He's the one who gives us life. Uh, he's the one who gives us the gift of life. We have that contrast of temptation where we give birth to sin. We're going to have, again, a contrast in Israel in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 18, of Israel who forgets the rock that gave them life, right? So it's that reminder of this fundamental creator. Well, that, that notion of God being the fundamental creator, the rock who gives life, is where he uses this strange language of the Lord who is the, the father of lights. And, and you look at this and you say, well, what, what do you mean by the father of lights? I mean, it, it sounds like God is just this weird creator of other domains or, or something else or kind of gives birth to the creation or something. Well, it's actually sort of James's point. He's using the language from Genesis 2 verse 4 where Moses says, and these are the generations of the heavens and earth, right? So it's this concept of, of not being there, being there, having a beginning, being birthed, and is by the command of God. Now the father of lights uh, would be along the lines of where you have Psalm 136, 7 through 9, recounting the creation account, where you have the sun that rules the day, the moon that rules the night. So you have these, these different creations that God has made to be rulers under him and to function in a particular way. And so as he's a father of lights, it's calling to our attention a very significant placement of God. When we study the sky and we look up at the stars, and it's marvelous to me how, how Scripture invites us to really look at the Lord's beautiful creation and what he has done. And, and to look up in the sky and to think God is above that magnificent canopy above us, as Genesis presents it, the, the firmament, the canopy that's basically placed over a terrarium. Is, is how Moses pictures it for us. That we're kind of like the, the lizards in the aquarium where you put the, the lid over it so the lizard can't get out. That's sort of the, the predicament, that there's this canopy that hides God in his full glory as he's above the canopy in the glory of heavens. And so it's an invitation for us to look at the sky and say, look at the magnificence of the stars and, and the magnificence of what he has created. And God is above that and gives us all good things. Now, he does something else with this contrast, because uh, when you think of the, the history of sailors, and it does seem James uses a lot of these analogies, this might be something that James has in mind, but you think of sailors navigating by the North Star and knowing the sky. Uh, the Lord knew I needed GPS. But nevertheless, when you look at the reality of what the Lord creates there with the sky and sailors navigating the North Star, it's a, it's a consistency, Right? So a, a skilled sailor would know how to get around the ocean by following the stars and knowing the, the outline of the stars and, and knowing the map of the sky. So there's a consistency that God has created that, that's marvelous. But now he uses this language, no variation or shadow, right? Because we, we can know there's stars that may appear and stars that disappear. So there's a variation, 
But the shadow he might be talking about is also the different phases of the moon. Or even the moon, where you think of the consistency, you know, you open your weather app today and you can see what phase of the moon it's going to be. It's consistent. You can almost get it down to the millisecond as to what the moon is going to look like when it comes up when we see it. But we also know that there's a full moon, there's a crescent moon, there's a half moon, we have a new moon, right? And so we see the variation in the sky. And we think of the, the stars and the moon being fixed and being consistent, but James is saying, here's the problem with that. There's variation. That changes. And, and we can't really rest in that, so where do we look? Well, we look to the Father who created it all because he is contrary to even the consistency of this creation. Contrary in this sense, he does not change. There is no variation. When we read the praise of God's steadfast love and mercy, it means that because God is consistent, we can bank on that steadfast love and mercy. When James tells us when you lack wisdom, ask God, he will give you wisdom. We can bank on the reality that the Lord will give us wisdom. When we understand that the Lord promises and gives us a grace to repent, that when we repent, the Lord will forgive us in Christ. Because that's consistent with who he is. When we get to the final judgment, we can be assured that we will enter into heaven based upon the merits of Christ and not our own. And when we start saying that for God to truly be a passionate God, he needs to change. And what do we really lose with this? I say we lose everything. We lose all hope. We lose all wisdom. We lose all confidence in our God. And James 1 verse 17 would make absolutely no sense. Because he's saying that this creation is consistent because of what God has done. This creation has its consistency in God. And this creation is not consistent, but God is consistent. He is the one who has created and ordered all things. He is the one who has created the stars in the sky. He is the one who orders the phases of the moon. He is a God who has done all these things. So we look at the Belgic Confession then in conclusion. And we ask, how can one truly hold to what the Belgic says, that God is unchangeable and still see him as being passionate. It's because passion, love, and God truly being moved. It's who he is. I mean, you look at this creation, you can see that this is not created by uh, a dull, uncreative, unpassionate being. I mean, it's, it's evident, even in a fallen world. And that's what James is inviting us to do. But we also have to understand that while there's variation and changes in this creation, even as we can marvel at its consistency, it's not as consistent as a living God. He is a giver of all good things. And if God changes, and changes in any way, contrary to what he has revealed about himself, there is no joy. There is no confidence in the Lord. There is no rest. There is no peace. There is no shalom. There is no assurance that in his providential care, he really will lead us to our glorious home. There is no assurance that in our day-to-day -day life, that he truly will lead us through each day 
and bring us to the place where he desires us to be. And so let's not concede a false dilemma that some people try to impose upon the scriptures or upon the text. When God repents, he's being consistent with his mercy. When God has grief over what he has created uh, in this world and what man has become, again, it's not a problem of his creation. It's a problem of the fall. And of course, God is passionate in his justice. And so he's going to move by his justice. But how much more confidence do we have as he's moved in his mercy in Christ Jesus? And then as he satisfies his justice and confers his mercy upon us in Christ, that we truly have life. Let us then come to the Father of lights, as James says it. And let us come to the God of heaven, who gives all wisdom, all mercy. And let us celebrate his steadfast love. And understand that he is a God who is passionate about his justice and mercy. Not because he changes, not because he adds something out wasn't there. It's who he is in his person, in his being. Let us then celebrate the wisdom of God and the joy of living in him as we sojourn under the sun and we humbly walk in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.